Oh, hi there, and welcome to the Learning Grounds podcast, episode 21, with Meredith Stewart. My name is Zach Chase, and I was so excited to talk to Meredith. She's one of my dear friends, and she's brilliant and does all these amazing things. And And when I talked to her, she was in uh, Washington, D.C., doing a uh, learning uh, conference about primary sources. Uh, we had a great conversation about teaching in an independent school and what that means as far as her relationship to national education policy and how she sees that and how she navigates that space, as well as how she teaches history to her students in the eight, in the middle and high school range and how those things differ and what she wants it to be and why she does what she does. Really a great conversation. If you would like to follow Meredith on Twitter, and I recommend that you do, she is at MS Stewart. That's at MS Stewart. Also, if you're going to the internet, you might as well go to the iTunes store, look up the Learning Grounds podcast, and leave us a review, or at the very least, rate us so that more people who are interested in hearing education podcasts can find us more easily. That's it. Sit back, relax, grab a cup of coffee, and enjoy this episode of Learning Grounds. Hi, Meredith Stewart. Hey, Zach Chase. How's it going? Great. Thanks for doing the podcast. I am happy to do it. Um, Before we get started, to get formalities out of the way, would you explain who you are and what it is you think you're doing? Ooh, that's a, that's a good question, the latter part of it. Uh, I teach 7th graders world history, and I teach 8th graders and 11th and 12th graders U.S. history at a 6 through 12 independent school in North Carolina. Awesome. And what have you been learning? Well, so this week I am in Washington, D.C. Um, at the Library of Congress uh, Teaching Primary Sources uh, Summer Institute. Um, so that has been really fantastic. Uh, all the resources of the Library of Congress uh, at our disposal. Uh, we just got back from a tour of the main reading room after it was closed, uh, which was like nerd uh, bibliophilia heaven. Um, so that was fantastic. Um, but yeah, we have just had lots of really good conversations about how to incorporate primary sources, uh, in the classroom. I teach history, but there are science teachers there and librarians and English teachers. Um, and so let's see today we spend some time thinking about, uh, how you choose and which, uh, primary sources you choose to use in your classroom. And that was just a really, uh, productive discussion because I was already using a lot of primary sources. We don't actually have a history textbook. Um, so I was already using a lot of primary sources, but we had some really good discussion around sort of selecting, uh, the most useful, uh, primary sources for any given, given lesson. And so. given that there are different, um, subject areas or disciplines being represented in those conversations, did you notice different qualifications for picking primary sources or is there kind of a, uh, was there a standard consensus or was science like, no, 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 we do it differently. <laughs> well, science is special. No, um, no. I, I mean, I think there were different purposes, but I think that varied not so much by uh, subject area, but more just sort of what you were hoping to accomplish in a particular lesson. So like, was it an introduction 
um, lesson where you're just trying to get kids engaged and sort of make them wonder or question or go, huh? Um, or was it a lesson where you've already sort of done the introductory work and you're trying to help students, uh, dig deeper into whatever the subject uh, is. We also split up for this particular exercise by elementary, middle and high school and looked at a set of probably 10 different primary sources and talked about sort of, if you could only use one of these, which one would you use and why? And so there was some variation kind of across, um, grade levels, although, uh, you know, some of the sources were picked to be used both in elementary level and high school. So uh, that led to some, to, to some interesting conversation. So how do you, because um, when I think about primary sources, I often think these, like, if you are a nerd of this subject area, you, you're going to, you're going to be keen on learning about these primary sources. But I, I just also think, I mean, and thinking back to my own experience, if it wasn't a thing that I was already interested in, it just mm-hmm. seemed like old stuff. Um, and and I, I, or I just couldn't access it or it wasn't like, ooh. Whereas now, I mean, I go to the Library of Congress and I walk into the to the room and I see the, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and it's just like, oh, yeah. But as a kid, it was just, oh, look, some brown paper. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I so I think that's where that's that's the teacher's job, right? Is to be sort of curating and and pulling and choosing uh, artifacts or documents or um, or photographs or paintings that are particularly eye catching or sort of strange. You know, I think um, I think primary sources that represent. Uh, sort of everyday life, domestic kind of life can can sometimes be interesting just because, especially if you're working in a period, you know, say 50 or more years away, it's so different from what we experience uh, on a day-to-day level or on a day, in our sort of uh, daily experience that that can make kids kind of wonder. Um, you know, I think it's also cool to give kids a, a picture of an, an object, say, and ask, you know, what do you think this might have been used for? Uh, I was uh, looking some at primary sources for the colonies and the Great Awakening and so found a picture of a, like a mobile preaching stand uh, sure. that evangelists would have used, uh, like, like taken 12. out to the field. Do you yeah, want, you do, right? Do you want you one of mine? I can send them, it to that you. Would, that, would be, that would be awesome because sure. I love to actually bring the object in, so that, that would be cool. Um, but I, so I'm thinking about sort of starting a lesson by giving them a picture of this, which looks kind of like a kid's playpen or it's not clear what, what it looks like and saying, what do you think this was used for? So I think if you can kind of, uh, sort of throw kids just a little bit off kilter in terms of, of what you hand them, ask them to kind of be detectives, then that can make it uh, seem a little bit less like just old stuff or old writing. So how to me also the the just the term primary sources seems almost dry or oh yeah almost... i would never say primary sources to a kid okay at be... least not early on <laughs> <laughs> later we would sneak it in and be like later, you know what you've like, been learning with you know all this cool stuff we've been looking at it's actually a primary source right. but <laughs> not the stupid secondary sources all right um <laughs> have, what are some pieces of that kind of learning experience that have been new because I would imagine that I'm specifically focusing on history. You, your primary source game is pretty strong. Are there things where you're kind of, Oh no, this is, 
this is different than what I've been doing. Yeah, I mean, the Library of Congress has such a gigantic collection that, I mean, even even sort of people who work there would be like, oh, this isn't actually my area. You can talk to so-and-so. So, I I mean, I think just the, the size of it uh, in and of itself, you could never sort of master all of it. Um, but I think some of the, I don't know if it's newness or just usefulness, it comes from sitting with other teachers and thinking about about practice. Um, I, I realized that over the past three or four summers, I've been really fortunate to be able to, for at least a week, go somewhere mm-hmm. and study something. Um, and whether that's been uh, at the Library of Congress or last year doing the National Writing Project in Charlotte um, or the year before that, uh, being uh, in in Cambridge, working at the at the Berkman uh, Center on on Internet and Society, that just that time to to sort of be with other educators and reflect about what we do in the classroom. Mm-hmm. What, in some ways, that's not new. Um, you know, this experience this summer reminds me a lot of National Writing Project, but just with more history teachers uh, than there were last summer. Um, but it, there's just this, I think, real usefulness in kind of sitting with other educators and asking, why do you do it this way? And also being in the position of a student, right? Um, and so we've been doing some of the types of activities that you might do with students, with primary sources, uh, as teachers. So this morning we were looking at a map and we each had a piece of the map and we were sort of trying to figure out what this was a map of. And then we, and then we came together and put the map together and, and tried to sort of figure out what it was. So I think just that experience of being a student is really useful as well. And, and have there been moments in activities, cause I've had these things happen where I'm doing something kind of taking on the student role with different material in an activity that, as a teacher, I probably have done and thought, oh, they they love this. This is so much fun. And then as the student on the other side, I'm like, oh, I can never ask a student to do this again. This is so boring. <laughs> you know, I will, I, I will say, um, and I'm not being uh, uh, compensated to say this at all, but I will say that's not, uh, that's not so far happened mm-hmm. this week. Um, we, we are only two days in, so I'll leave, I'll leave the the possibility it all falls apart on Wednesday that's still open it's possible um I do realize that I'm the kind of student and I certainly feel like I have students like these that I need uh you know if I'm doodling or if I'm sort of checking Twitter or something like that that I've I feel like I need a little bit of a distraction to Mm -hmm. actually be able to pay attention better um I don't know Ooh. if a brain scientist would tell me that that's actually true or not, but it, it feels like it. Um, they make it so, up as they go along anyway. Yeah. So. yeah. Um, so I think, you know, I think just the sort of reminder that just because kids don't necessarily look like they're not paying attention that they are. I think, too, one, one thing I did notice today, and this was uh, – a good thing and a bad thing was that by the end of the day, I just felt totally and completely overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Um, we actually had a free work period and I, I went and sat in a corner, uh, by myself, um, not because, not, not because I was distraught or anything, but just the sort of stimulus of it was so much. We had uh, a chance to talk with like 18 different areas of the library, uh, librarians in 18 different areas. And I was like, Whoa, this is too much. Um, so I think building in time, um, and, and space for students who need less sort of stimulus and recognizing that, you know, there may be times when a kid needs to go like sit on the floor in the corner and that's fine. Um, and they'll be, they'll be working there too. 
So how, how many years have you been in the classroom? Uh, I am going into my either sixth or seventh year, kind of depending on, depending on how you count the first year I was, uh, sort of long-term subbing in a couple of different positions, but yeah, six, we'll count that. We'll count. We, we should count that. Yeah. <laughs> we should count. That. So this will be going into my seventh year. I bet you felt like you were teaching that year. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I was, I was actually teaching that year, <laughs> especially uh, the 12 weeks I was doing third grade. Oh, well, you were yep. surviving that week, I would think. <laughs> um, what would you say in the last seven years you've uh, has changed the most in your practice? I mean, what would you look at, like, first year or second year Miss Stewart and say, oh, wow, don't do that anymore? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think... Hmm. What has changed in the past seven years? I think for me, there's always this tension between sort of the importance of organization and and structure and design and also the freedom uh, to be sort of creative and spontaneous and somebody ask an interesting question and then we go down that trail for the next uh, 20 minutes. Um, So I think my first year... I was really, really well prepared, uh, mostly because I only had one prep and I didn't have other things that I was doing in my life. And so that was all (laughs) I did. Um, but that actually allowed me some freedom. And then, um, when I moved and I had two or three new preps and I wasn't as prepared, I, I, in some ways actually felt less, uh, able to be flexible because I didn't sort of know exactly where we were going next. And, um, so I feel like next year will be my third year of teaching the, the three preps uh, that I teach or have taught. And, uh, I'm really looking forward to that because I feel like I'm, I'm getting things a little bit more, uh, structured in a way that I'd like. Um, but instead of that being sort of, you know, like the professor who has the same yellowed, uh, notes that he's had for 20 years, instead having that structure actually makes me feel more comfortable, uh, sort of, you know, going down a different path because I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if that, does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, that, that I, I feel more confident in being able to be flexible um, because I don't feel like that we have to get to certain things or, yeah. Well, and it also sounds like as much as the summer learning opportunities are about you finding new materials and new practices and refining those practices, they're, they sound like they're also a reminder of kind of studenthood in a way that keeps things fresh. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think just picking up one of the great things about these sorts of experiences is watching other people teach. Um, and, and usually these are people who have been classroom teachers for a long time and are now working as facilitators or are still classroom teachers. Um, and so just being able to watch other people teach, which I feel like as a teacher, uh, you just don't get a lot of time to do necessarily. And so that's really nice to be able to say, Oh, that was really good. I want to use that in my classroom or, you know, oh, I, I want to make sure I'm not doing that as much. Right. How do you find these? How do you find these opportunities? I mean, are there just posters on the faculty lounge and <laughs> faculty you like lounge. pull uh, a strip of paper and no, oh, I'll call this number. I'll go do that. 
Um, no, I think, I think a lot of it comes, uh, from, uh, from sort of a, an online network of people, uh, that I've built up, uh, and just saying, and, and people that I've met at conferences too, and just saying what, you know, what interesting experiences have you had, um, during, during the summer and then sort of hearing people say, oh, this was really good, or this was really good. Uh, you know, some of it is just sort of searching online, uh, you know, Googling, you know, summer education opportunities for teachers. Um, and some of it is thinking about sort of places that I'd like to be. I really like DC in the summer. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to see if I can find, you know, something in Washington uh, for, for the summer. Um, yeah. And some of it is other people encouraging me, you know, saying, hey, you know, I did National Writing Project. It was amazing. Uh, encouraging and or bullying uh, maybe with the National Writing Project. Uh, I think no. it's just strong persuasive um, yeah, technique. So I mean, I, they're good writers. So Yes. Strong, strong persuasive technique. Yes. Yes. We'll, we'll call it that. Um, so that's, that's been the way that I've, that I've found most of those opportunities. I want to switch to kind of a completely different topic and, and area of your life. Um, and, and working in independent, an independent school, um, and I've only ever worked in, in the public school side of things. Um, what are your awarenesses or how do you feel like it compares, uh, to other awarenesses of, uh, kind of policy pieces of American education? I mean, it, I would imagine there are some pieces that are quite insulated from it, but then there are probably others where where the same conversations are being had. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think as an independent school educator, if you're not interested in education policy, it's pretty easy to sort of distance yourself from that, right? To say like, oh, thank goodness we don't, you know, we don't have to deal with those issues. Um, by the, by the same token, I, or not by the same token, I, I actually am sort of interested in those policy pieces. And I think there's a big discussion going on within independent schools about sort of what our role is vis-a-vis the education system in America. Um, and I, I certainly, uh, am, you know, receptive to the criticism that uh, it's, you know, that that I in some way have sort of, that independent schools aren't necessarily a good thing because uh, they, you know, they draw kids and resources out of out of a public school system uh, that might uh, that might benefit from them. By the same token, I'm in a position where I don't have a teaching certificate because of sort of the roundabout way that I got into teaching, um, and to do so would require uh, money and, and time that I, that I don't have at this point. You know, I think that, I think the thing that independent schools, uh, can do is use the flexibility and freedom that they have to really be creative and be risk takers. Um, and hopefully, um, sort of, uh, explore ways in ways of education that might, that might later be, um, you know, be adopted, uh, by, by folks, uh, who are, you know, who are in public education by the same token, I think, uh, you know, independent schools can also, uh, learn a lot from, from our colleagues in, in public education who a lot of times are working, uh, under much more sort of constrained, uh, circumstances than, than we are. Well, and I've got a, a few friends, um, 
who are working in, in independent schools and some of their frustrations as they interview at, at new schools or as they're trying to kind of bring in some new ideas is that they have this sense that independent schools are in fact more staid in their approach to things, right? That, well, look, the kids keep coming. We keep sending them to college. Clearly, we are doing right by by everybody we're supposed to do right by, so why why adopt these new pieces, right? Like, we are successful by this measure, so there's no need to try something new. Yeah, and I think, I think that certainly ver- can vary by school in terms of how committed the school is to, to innovation, um, to sort of discovery in, in education. Uh, I, I feel like I, I'm grateful that our school really does put this emphasis on, you know, sort of, uh, making sure that we are teaching in a way that, that students are engaged and that we're not just doing things because we have always done them, uh, that way. And I think, you know, if independent schools, yeah, if I think if they're doing things that way and they work, um, and they're good for their kids, then I think that's one thing. I think if you're doing things just because you've always done them that way, then, then in some ways you're squandering a kind of opportunity, uh, that you have to really, uh, to, to try new and, and interesting, interesting things. How do you, I mean, you kind of mentioned the idea of this public independent, um, collaboration and and kind of learning across those lines how do you personally make sure that you stay connected to to both of those worlds i mean that's how we met right um right and uh but how do you do that i mean what what do you do to make sure that you've got a a foot in both of those ecosystems yeah i think for me sort of uh online spaces provide the easiest place for, for conversation, uh, with, with people who are working in both private and, and independent school education. Um, so places like Twitter, but also places like, um, the English companion Ning or, um, you know, the, the national social studies Ning, I've been a little less active there, but those are places where I, I see both public and independent school educators having conversations. Also, you know, conferences, places like Educon or, or, uh, subject area specific conferences, um, are places for connecting and these summer institutes too, um, places for connecting and sort of, uh, having conversations about the different, uh, situations in which people find themselves. And, and I think in a way that independent school education isn't monolithic, public school education isn't monolithic either. When we were talking about the primary sources today and sort of choosing which ones you would use, um, there were also, also some very sort of geographic-specific or community-specific uh, limitations that people were operating under in terms of technology, but also just in terms of the student population um, that they, that they're serving. So I think even within, you know, public and independent schools, there's still a a big range of differences of experience. And and speaking of kind of some of those differences, meaning public schools in the vast majority of states are about to pick up the common core. Um, how much of that conversation has infiltrated, have you seen infiltrating the independent school landscape or, is it kind of you? Are you guys sitting back thinking, "Thank goodness that is not a thing we have to worry about"? 
You know, it's varied. Um, I think in general, it's not a conversation that's in the forefront of of folks' minds in the independent school world, at least that I've encountered. By the same token, um, we're looking at the... Uh, the alignment and the structure of our curriculum. I'm, I'm the history department chair and we're doing that uh, within our department this year. And certainly Common Core is something that I'm looking at just to see uh, sort of what um, you know, students' experiences at public schools are going to be like. And I, I, you know, I think there are things that are, are potentially beneficial about the Common Core. And I think uh, we at least uh, would serve ourselves well to look at it uh, now, whether we, you know, I, highly unlikely that we would actually, uh, adopt it. But I think, you know, I think there are things about it using informational text and sort of the skill, um, the progression of skills that are useful to us in terms of sort of figuring out what our, what our curriculum looks like. Is there a fear or should there be a fear or should we be concerned um, that that kind of curricular freedom versus adherence to this larger national curriculum is going to, in some ways, widen a, a gap that's there. I mean, you talked a little bit about students leaving the public system to move into independent schools and the funding and those kinds of things. Are there going to should we be asking deeper questions about? Well, if you're not in those schools, are you just going to get a different education? Are you going to be? I mean. Are we missing that conversation? Because it's not one that I've necessarily heard much about when we when we consider the Common Core. I I hope not. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with implementation and what uh, what it ends up looking like, right? I don't, you know, I think um, my my personal perspective is on its face, Common Core isn't isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think there are criticisms that could be made. My concern would be just sort of what does, what does it look like when, um, when people start to try and standardize a a curriculum like Common Core, especially if they're uh, trying to create um, assessments that are, that are uniform across states or, or nationally. Um, Is there a danger of that widening a, a gap? Um, possibly. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's also a conversation, a much broader conversation to be had about, um, social inequality in general, um, and how, that... <laughs> well, we really embrace that in America. <laughs> right. we're, we're all about, Oh, let's have that conversation some let's, more. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's talk more about that. Um, you know, I think, uh, to, to my mind, education is a piece of that conversation. And I, that, that doesn't mean I, I think we can't have the education conversation without the bigger conversation, but I think we're, we're not going to, to solve or to, or to as fully address as we could the education conversation without having the bigger, the bigger conversation. I'm going to switch gears again um, <laughs> and, and, and kind of go a little bit more deeply as far as um, kind of standards and, and what's being taught. How do you approach a history curriculum? I mean, specifically now as the as the department chair, um, I know how I learned it, right? I know where the wars happened in history. Um, this is after Mesopotamia, that's how we learned history, um, <laughs> right? Like, if a, if a war happened, you learned about it. You learned about it, unless it was the Vietnam War, because we didn't quite get there. Um, 
pretty sure we stopped. Because you ran out of time. Yeah, wars were pretty much done after World War II, right? Like, that's... Is that true? I hope so. Uh, yeah, not not actually. But oh, okay. Yeah. But how do you, I mean, how do you, and then how does the your department, how do you come to a consensus or how do you approach teaching history? Yeah. So I, I guess I'll talk about it at the middle school level and then at the high school level. The high school class that I teach is actually uh, arranged thematically rather than, than chronologically, and, and I owe certainly a a gigantic debt there to your former colleague, uh, Diana Laufenberg. Um, who, oh, her. Yeah, that, that girl. Um, who, I, who I stole with her permission a, a fair chunk of material from. Um, but I think, uh, you know, for high schoolers especially, I've just really seen them engage with material in ways that, um, that I hadn't seen before. And they sort of report, you know, self-report too, that, wow, this is really an interesting history class. And wow, it seems like this stuff actually matters. Um, and so I think for, for them, uh, teaching it, uh, thematically has been really, um, really exciting and feels very sort of relevant and they sort of start to see connections that they, they wouldn't have seen, um, otherwise, you know, the, the potential danger in that is that they lose, uh, that they don't have even the most basic sense of chronology. Um, so I, I, in some ways feel like the pendulum, uh, for me has to swing just a tiny bit, uh, back towards, uh, chronology. We, my, my plan in, in, in the years that I've taught this class so far, there have been no quizzes and tests. Uh, in this, in this coming year, there's going to be one quiz, uh, which you can take as many times as you need to, uh, to get a hundred on it. And it's going to be, uh, a, totally objective, but I think uh, fairly reasonable and well thought out quiz of things that you need to know about um, American history, not to uh, appear stupid at, um, at fraternity or sorority parties. If, if someone asks you, so that's, that's my plan. Is that the title? Is that the formal? Yeah, that's, that's um, my, that's my plan there. But then, so for the middle school, sorry, do you want me to keep going? Well, I just, can we pause down that for a second? Yeah, sure. How, when you're writing that quiz, how do you decide? <laughs> you decide what it is. Right. I mean. Yeah, I mean. Sumner maybe, you know, and Sumter. I mean, that's going to, that stumps people. Um, right. But I mean, how do you decide what goes on that quiz and, and what we need to know? What's, I mean, are we just going to, are you just going to flip through Edie Hirsch and just say, oh, these are no, the things. Look, it's there. It's there. Um, yeah, that's a good question. And. And maybe uh, what needs to happen is the quiz needs to be made up by the by the class as we go along, and then we give it at the at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, that that would be another approach. Um, you know, I, I think in general there are things like uh, World War II happened in the 20th century um, that just sort of are kind of baseline expectations. Um, I, I or that the 20th not, century is the 1900s and the that's, 19th that's, century is the 1800s because that always gives me trouble still. That's right. That's right. That may, maybe that should be on the quiz uh, as, as well. Um, certainly I'm not about privileging that kind of information, but I do think it makes things like uh, searching for information online difficult if you don't have, uh, not, not that question specifically, but if you don't have some sort of uh, kind of, frame 
um, that is that is at least a little bit chronological. I'm I'm certainly willing for willing to hear pushback on that point. Um, well, but. I mean, it, it se- I mean, because the I know that uh, from a themed approach, um, and I would often teach more kind of genres of writing and and reading when I was teaching uh, kids English. Uh, so a, kind of a similar uh, approach. I the the understandings were much more complex. But there were still those basic pieces, like oh, commas. Like, yeah, let's right. let's go ahead and talk about those because right. they are all over the place or nowhere to be found. Right. Um, and so, and so I, I guess that makes sense. I just think I don't know how. How do you pick? It feels like two very different theories or or pedagogies of of what you're doing, um, and how do you get those two to jive? Um, or maybe they do naturally and I just feel like they don't. Yeah. I mean, I think I feel a lot more sort of, uh, I would feel a lot more conflicted if I was trying to do them both simultaneously throughout the course, which is Mm -hmm. actually a little bit more like what we do at the middle school level. So I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just think, you know, there are, yeah, there are, there are things that that it feels like you kind of need to know to be able to start a di- discussion, but I don't know if that's right or not. <laughs> well, and, well, and I wonder if it's more it comes from a place of as the themes are being investigated, students saying, "Oh, this is this is a key point of information we should probably all like here's what I found as I'm doing this project that we should probably all know about." Um, and maybe having it constructed in that way of, of meaning, um, right. And maybe not. Yeah. I guess what I wonder is, do they have enough experience to be able to identify those particular pieces of information when they, the final project for the course is that they become an expert on a specific topic in uh in American history and trace it sort of they they choose the theme essentially and, and trace it through throughout history um and there I certainly am you know sort of feel like I defer to them as the experts on that particular topic and mm-hmm. so I think there it's a lot easier for them to say this is an important person in the history of baseball or this is an important person in the history of transportation right um so I I think at least I hope what I'm doing is in the earlier units kind of modeling. Um, there are lots of stories around this topic. We're going to dig into a lot of them, but here are stories or here are pieces of information that are going to be seen by others as kind of foundational, basic, uh, basic pieces of information. Abraham Lincoln was president uh, during the civil war. Um, you know, those, you know, those pieces of information, I feel like having, because I'm somebody who's read a little bit more history than they have, mm-hmm. um, and a little An expert, bit better, maybe. Yeah, maybe, um, a little bit better equipped to say, to highlight this and not to say that this is in, more important than other pieces of information. Um, but this is a piece of information you should pay attention to. So... <laughs> Thank you. Tell tell me about explain the middle school then, because you sounded like the thing that you're conflicted about is the thing that you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, no. So so the middle school 
um, proceeds for the most part more, um, more chronologically, although that's not, uh, not universally true. Um, the sixth grade level is sort of ancient, uh, world history, um, but also has some, uh, some contemporary history in it too. So they look at, um, sort of Chinese history, both, uh, more ancient and then also, uh, and then also modern, modern Chinese history at the seventh grade level, which I teach it's world history. So we start out, uh, in the year 1000 and we look at sort of eight different, uh, cultures across the world in that time period. Uh, we talk about things that they have in common and, and things that are different. And we also talk about this idea of the dark ages that gets applied by Renaissance scholars to, uh, to the middle ages, to the, to the dark ages. And we ask, uh, sort of, is that, uh, is that a fair characterization of what's going on in these places in the world, uh, that we look at in China, in Ghana, in the Islamic world. Um, so we do that and then, and we kind of proceed through world history, sort of taking, uh, I almost imagine us sort of going in a little spaceship and plopping ourselves down in a particular uh, time period and then sort of surveying uh, the world and seeing uh, what's happening at that point. And then the eighth grade is U.S. history. And I think some of the work of, of this year is going to be looking at what are what is there that multiple grade levels are doing and are we using our time well? So for example, seventh and eighth grade both teach World War One and Two because they're wars that uh, the U.S. was involved in but they also involve the world. Uh-huh. And so um, it's kind of naturally happened this way, but maybe a little bit more formal. Seventh grade spends a lot more time on World War One because we talk about industrialization and um, and World War One, And then eighth grade uh, spends more time on World War Two because we talk about uh, the Holocaust, even though it's not in some ways specifically American history. Uh, developmentally, that feels like the best place for it. Um, and so trying to find ways of uh, using time as, as efficiently as we can at the different grade levels. Um, and because we do a fair amount of digging pretty deeply, um, even at the middle school level, so that's the part I don't feel uh, conflicted about. <laughs> um, how you know how are are we are we using our time well? And I think I think that's a lot of of what the the work of next year is going to be about. So why not thematic teaching in the middle school as well as the high school? That's a good question. And and having just talked about it, I actually in some ways feel like we do. I was like, oh, wow, we actually do do some thematic <laughs> stuff you know, at the 7th and 8th grade levels. And we, and we do actually even in the 8th grade. 8th grade to me feels like the most sort of chronologic um, uh, you know, sort of class that we teach. But even at the 8th grade, we do uh, a unit called History Repeats where we look at the Salem witch trials in conjunction with McCarthy. And mm-hmm. we look at um, the Holocaust in conjunction with Japanese American internment camps. So even, even at that level, I think we're still giving kids um, some, some experience with sort of talking about things um, thematically. I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I think in some ways maybe, for a middle schooler, it helps to have a little bit clearer sense of organization. Um, but I think we're also 
looking for ways uh, to, yeah, I mean, I think it's always good to be looking for ways to make connections um, across time periods. How do you, so kind of, I want to focus a little bit on kind of world history and because you mentioned Ghana and things that were going on in Asia, um, how does class come in to those those conversations? Because I know when I a lot of the conversations around China today are talking about how, how developed China is and how much they are a competitor in the world economy, because the, the economy is clearly a race to be one. Um, <laughs> but there's also tremendous poverty in these places, and and how do you present make sure that that is balanced and that like okay here's the other way the government is maybe not supporting its its people and then i'm going to double this question up and you can start wherever you want the other side of things is kind of talking about places that we consider to be the developing world or the third world or places with less material fewer material goods um and how do you tell the history of that as having the same kind of status or privilege um, or dynamicism, uh, even though that we've, we've labeled it this for contemporary reasons, uh, valuing it in the, in the same way that you might value the history that is traditional or the way history is traditionally told about kind of European nations. Right. I think the place that we do this best, um, is probably with Africa, and I certainly there am in debt to uh, the other seventh grade teacher who has a real interest in Africa and who has spent significant amounts of time in Africa. And we did a lot of sort of revamping and, and thinking about how we how we taught Africa. One one thing is to say that it's an entire continent, right, with lots of different um, lots right. of different oh, <laughs> countries and cultures, and it's shocking. Um, and so you can't just say like all oh, of African history. Um, by the same token, we want to sort of give uh, students a flavor for for different places in Africa and their history. But it's, there's also so much history that you just can't cover it all. So uh, what we what we did this past year was to look at Africa before colonization, right? Mm-hmm. To look at sort of independent Africa, to look at um, you know artistic contributions that were being made, to look at government structure uh, before before colonization um and then and then study the history of colonization and and talk really honestly about why uh european nations wanted to colonize african nations what resources that they were after um and uh then and then talk about some you know talk honestly about some of the real problems that that created um but and and also talk about sort of the the stated goals of colonization, um, this idea of, of sort of Europeanizing, uh, Africa, right. Sort of bringing them culture, um, and really sort of critiquing that, um, acknowledging that in some ways conditions improve, um, but in a lot of ways, culture is destroyed. Um, well, I would imagine even that the difficulty there would be, um, the, the people that we're talking about as not being great are the people who probably look like you um, yeah. in many cases. Uh, yeah. and, and that seems like a really complicated space to navigate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the beauty of middle schoolers though, is that they're, that they're in some ways sort of able to, 
to do that. In some in some ways, middle schoolers really struggle with empathy, but but in a lot of ways, they also can be really. Um, they they sort of get upset about things, right? In ways that I then I actually think is sort of healthy. Like, what do you mean that they went to Africa and just told the people that they should, you know, be like that? I mean, be like Europeans. Like, why didn't they see that that was stupid? And you know, that kind of that kind of moral outrage is kind of fun um, to to see in in middle schoolers. So so we talk about colonization, and then we talk about. Um, independence movements and and contemporary Africa. And I think having worked all the way through that gives students a lot better sense of why, um, for some potential reasons, uh, that there is such um, unrest in particular places or or poverty in particular places in Africa um, now, and to see what was what was the role that that colonization that Europeans played in that too. And it makes it more difficult um, to just look at Africa and say, look at Africa, the mess, you know, look at, look at Uganda, you look at um, Somalia and, and it's, you know, it's a mess and why can't they get their act together? Um, instead, you sort of say, wow, look at the history here. And, you know, may, you know if, if we had experienced a similar, you know, similar set of circumstances, maybe, you know, maybe the United States would look vastly different. Than- well, and, and the Native Americans did experience something similar. Exactly. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Which they're right. <laughs> yeah. Didn't, you know, ended up even worse. Some would exactly. say. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, in, in ways too that people would look at Native Americans and say like, why, you know, why, why are there such problems and why can't they just get themselves, you know, to, you know, and in, and in U.S. history, we do that sort of tracing like, wow, the, you know, this, there, there's a set of circumstances that, that led to this and, and there's, at least in my mind, some, some moral culpability there as well. Right. A lot to wrap your mind around. Yeah. Um, we, I'm going to wrap up this conversation. It has been fantastic as it usually is when I get to talk to you. Um, but before I do, uh, what are you reading right now? And what, what do you recommend? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so I am about eight pages from the end of John Dewey's, uh, experience in education. Oh, um, which is a, a nice little, uh, nice little slim. Well, I uh, had not, met, I, I, had not actually read anything um, kind of book book length, even short length by him. Um, so that's been, yeah, that's been really fun and and interesting. Um, I am a couple pages into a book called The Lady and Her Monsters, uh, which is about Mary Shelley and uh, sort of Frankenstein and experiments uh, that were that were going on um, at that time period. Let's see. Is there anything, I'm trying to think of anything else that I've read recently that's been, that's been really good. Um, another book by the brother of Augustine uh, Burroughs, who wrote Running With Scissors and that kind of thing, called uh, Look Me in the Eye. Uh, and so it's about his experience growing up with um, Asperger's. That was, that was a really interesting, hmm. interesting read. So, yeah. Great. And then Meredith that. Stewart, if people want to read your thoughts on the interwebs, yes. uh, where can they find you? I am at Miss Stewart, M-S uh, Stewart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T, 
um, on Twitter, and uh, that will give you a link to my blog, which is just meredithstewart.com. Uh, so that's that's those are my main spaces on Queen of all media, really. Um, you know, I, I it, it may be an addiction, uh, really. <laughs> but if you say it's royalty, yeah, then it but if, then it's but if you couch it as work or connecting, then yeah, right. then it's okay. Then it's okay. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for making the time to have this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Now I have a lot to think about. All right. Thanks. It was great to talk with you, Zach. You too. You've done it. You've finished episode 21 of Learning Grounds. Thanks so much, and thanks to Meredith Stewart for being uh, on the show. And uh, thank you in advance for going to iTunes and saying, hey, I like this show, and rating us and reviewing us in the iTunes store. Have a great time. We'll see you next time. Thank you.